Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. Latter-day Survival. I'm your host today, Sarah Haley. On the call with me also is Kendra, so you'll hear her voice from time to time. Our guest today is Andrea Isom. We're really excited to have her. We actually found her about a year ago on Facebook. Um, She had posted an article that she wrote, and it was very well written, very well worded. And we feel her story is going to be very helpful to a lot of people, very healing. Um, So I'm going to hand this over to Andrea and let her take it away. I don't know if you want to start with some background or anything, but welcome to the show, to the uh, podcast. We're happy to have you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I, I guess I should preface this. We're recording this in July, and uh, y- you know that I'm a Latter-day survivor because I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah on July 24th. So th- that prefaces that, Pioneer Day, and my grandmother would never let me forget it through all of my questioning, through all of my, you know, never being able to measure up to her standards, she would always remind me that I was a disappointment to my pioneer ancestors and that my birthday was not an act. So I guess uh, the story that I guess brought me to your attention was an incident that happened in my youth with Henry B. Eyring, who is now the second in command of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I was on the debate team at Bountiful High School in Bountiful, Utah, um, and Henry B. Eyring's son, Matt Eyring, was like a debate captain. He managed, he was the student manager of the other students, and he was a little bit older than I was. I was a sophomore, and I got a lot of attention because I was one of the first sophomores to have won the school oratory contest. and. It was kind of a big deal when a sophomore went around competing in debate tournaments, which I did. Not many sophomores did. It wasn't unheard of, but um, I was one of the few. And what troubled me a lot, even during that time, I grew up with a father who was mostly not active, who had stopped believing. And I grew up with a mother who had long stopped believing, but was still playing the role, was still trying to convince everybody that she was a good Mormon. And she felt She had to do that in order for her children not to be social pariahs. I was content to be a social pariah because 
I just could not live anything I didn't believe in. I just kind of came out of the womb like that. Uh, but one thing that really disturbed me is even though I went to a public high school, before every tournament, the debate team would gather and form a prayer circle in a public school. I was a little taken aback by this. I didn't like it. And part of the reason I didn't like it is uh, I did some of my growing up abroad on an Air Force base and outside of Utah where it was the Mormons that were getting the backlash from other people. So I never liked to be called out in religion and uh, never liked it to be advertised. And I was always taught, hey, that's a subject you leave alone. And there's a division between church and state. No one should ask you. You shouldn't be called out. So I was a little taken aback when we were expected to pray. And I remember saying, I'm uncomfortable with this. And I got stares all around. And Mr. Eyring, the younger Mr. Eyring, told me, hey, this is what we do. It doesn't matter that it's public school. This is what we do. It's a tradition. You do it. And I said, I'm uncomfortable with it. And I stood back. There were a few times when I just didn't want to have the fight. So I just kind of participated without saying anything. But a lot of times I stood back with the other two or three either inactive Mormon kids or non-Mormon kids. But it uh, became a deep, it, it became a big deal. And I'm, I'm not quite sure why. It was probably because he thought he had some sort of dominion over me. As a debate manager, he had the right to ask me to help, to clean things up, clean up the extent file, you know, hey, help us carry the briefs to and from the bus. But I felt he gave me a lot of orders that were outside the scope of what a debate manager should be telling me to do, such as he started uh, discussing my clothing. He started discussing my demeanor. He started discussing my beliefs. He started discussing my actions and uh, he started discussing why he thought I should be there to pray. Uh, I don't know if he knew my genealogy, but he may have. Um, my great-great-grandfather was a general authority. And I come from a line of lots of famous Mormons, lots of famous pioneers. I don't know if he was privy to that, but uh, he told me that, you know, I should stand in the prayer circle and set a good example. I don't know how I was setting a bad example, but I, I didn't want to. And it became an issue with me. I didn't like being told what to do. I didn't like him, first of all, talking about my the way I dressed, talking about the way I acted, because I was talking about a rather serious subject. It's not as if I was going to debate tournaments to be frivolous about current events. <laughs> right. Taking stances that my speeches and the stances I took would be judged on their merits. But it got to be uh, a power struggle. And he kept telling me to join the circle and I kept saying no. And it got to a point where he just flat out one day gave me an order, join the circle. I'm telling you to join the circle. And I said no. And I guess I didn't realize, even though I come from this big Mormon family where both my parents were the only, were the odd ducks in either side of the family who weren't, you know, in lockstep with everything else. But, um, so I guess I didn't know, but I didn't realize that when you were called on to say a prayer, it was considered bad manners to say no. So what he started to do is call on me to say and lead these prayers. And I flat out 
it wasn't a no. I didn't tell him no. I told him hell no. <laughs> it was a flat out refusal, not a no thank you. Because I really thought he was singling me out. And I didn't think it was fair. And I wasn't going to lose this power struggle. Because I really thought he was out of line. And um, those were boundaries I thought were worth protecting. Uh, so I said no. Stood there. And finally the teacher came in and said, she doesn't want to. Don't make her. <laughs> and after that, uh, he just, he started being kind of a bully. He started saying snide comments to me. So I just started saying snide comments back. And I finally came back at him with a John Stuart Mill quote saying, you know, if everybody but one were of one opinion, that one person has no right to dictate to the majority, just as the majority does not have the right to dictate to that one person. And I said, you know, I think it's pretty odd that you're trying to force me into this little cube about my religious beliefs and my religious behavior, given that your own grandfather was most likely denied a Nobel Prize because he stood up for what he believed in. Right. And even though a lot of his grandfather's work was worthy of Nobel Prizes, his grandfather, I think, was nominated for a Nobel Prize, but didn't win. And a lot of people believe that it was because he was a believing Mormon, even though his work followed scientific methods, he was still persecuted for what he believed and what he would do and what he didn't do. And I brought that up and that quieted him down. So I didn't hear anything about it for several months. So the rest of the season ended. He and I stood in our different corners. We had nothing to do with each other. But at the end of the year, there was a banquet. And my parents were out of town. Normally they would have attended. So a lot of debate students came with their parents. Um, with friends, with their family, and there were awards given out, and it was just a social event. My parents were out of town, so I ended up going with a friend of mine, and um, my grandmother was at home staying with the younger children. And at that event, there were probably 200 people in the high school, in the high school cafeteria. There was a banquet, there was punch, there was you know, an awards ceremony. And in the time when people were mingling, I somehow got away from my friend and Henry B. Eyring came up to me and he said, you're Andrea. And I said, yes. And he said, yeah, my son, you know, my son has a lot to say about you. And I was rather taken aback. And I said, oh, and um, he said, come over here and talk. And I did not follow him. I thought it was weird. And he said, and so he came up and he grabbed my shoulder very hard and he basically moved me to an area where we could talk. And mind you, I was not alone. It was not as if I was alone in a hall and he courted me. I was in a room of 250 other people. And so he grabbed my shoulder and he held on to my shoulder. It started off as one of those priesthood half hugs and it turned into like a almost a quarter Nelson. And he did not stop that vice grip on my shoulder. I'm 5'2". He's 6'5". I was frightened. And then he said, do you know who I am? And I said, everybody knows who you are. <laughs> I mean, he had just been upgraded from a general authority to a, to, I, th I think, presiding president of the bishopric. And this was before he became an apostle. And we all knew that he was like on the fast track to apostle. I said, yes, I know who you are. And he said, I have been prompted to tell you that you need to start using your gift of speech 
for the greater good of Heavenly Father and not for the adversary. And this rather ticked me off because uh, the oratory that I had been given that year was about um, how my brother had been sexually molested at the Utah State Institution because the group home that he was in had fallen apart. It had lost funding. And uh, my brother Raymond was very destructive. And the speech I was given was, you know, about how there was corruption at the state training school and how disabled people were being violated and how we really needed to resolve this problem. And, you know, in my mind, I was doing good. And I just was so ticked. I looked at him and I said, and just what does the speech I have been giving this year, just what would make you think I am, I am speaking for the greater good of Satan? And he said, are you talking back to me? And I said, yes. I said, you're wrong. You don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I'm about. It's, you know, it's, it's not right that you should be telling me this. And he said, I have every right to tell you this. I was prompted. And, I, and he, again, he asked me, do you know who I am? And I said, yeah, but apparently you don't know who I am if you think that somehow I am devoted to evil just because I think your son is overstepping his bounds and I'm standing up to him. And it, 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 this whole time, this man has got my shoulder in a vice pinch. I'm arguing with him. I'm obviously hurting. I'm obviously, you know, I was trying to contort myself to get away from his grip. I was embarrassed. I thought, isn't, doesn't somebody see this? But the fact that um, a general authority is taking a wayward girl aside in a room full of 250 people, that's okay because he was Henry B. Eyring. In what other place on the planet can a man do that? Even in 1985, I don't think that was considered good behavior anywhere else. And I continued to be defiant. I wasn't trying to be loud. I wasn't shouting at him, but I started to raise my voice because I was getting angry. He was violating me and I knew it. And I didn't cower. I finally just said, you're hurting me. And if you don't stop, I'm going to scream. And he said, you go ahead and scream. You know who I, you know, again, I'm Henry B. Eyring. And I said, you know, maybe you think what you're doing is right, but it's still going to embarrass you if I scream. And he finally just kind of let go, but he didn't let go. He kind of let go with a shove. And I had to regain my balance and it left a bruise on my shoulder. And uh, I, I, I know it wasn't any kind of sexual abuse, but it was physical abuse. It was spiritual abuse. It was psychological abuse. The fact that his son, you know, who was a, a senior in high school, was getting some pushback from a strong girl led him to believe he had the right in a room full of 250 people to take me aside and take me to task without even a by your leave from my parents. And my parents weren't there. If my father had been there, he'd have said something. But I was very troubled by this. I was very upset. And, and he was right. Everybody saw what he was doing. Nobody batted an eyelash because he was Henry B. Iron. Yeah, absolutely. I felt humiliated. I was angry. I was upset. I was also ticked off that here he was. I knew I was being abused. And 
Everyone saw it and no one did a thing. And it made me realize, you know, there were times, you know, I was still at the time, I never, I didn't believe. I, I had figured out that the doctrine was kind of horrible. I quit going to church because I got bullied at church. But, you know, this made me realize you are no prophet of God. You are a man. I mean, you're supposed to have the gift of discernment. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm about. And how dare you accuse me? How dare you? Because when it comes to my disabled brother, you know, there was no telling me that you knew better. You know, there was no telling me that you were the expert. Yeah. How insightful of you actually be able to speak up for yourself at, you know, being a teenage girl. I know, you know, when I was a teenage girl in the church, I definitely, you know, you're told to obey, you're told to never question, you're told to, you don't speak up. So good for you to be able to speak up to his son and then to him. Because I still at this, at this age, at 39 years old, I still struggle with being able to speak up for myself and not just sit back and obey. So that's amazing for you that that you could do that as a teenager and voice your your concerns when this man has his hand on you that's supposed to have the discernment. I know. And, you know, that's what my therapists have told me over the years. But here's the thing. I went back home and my 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 grandmother, my father's mother, who is the worst. I mean, I I just felt betrayed. Um she was probably the worst misogynist ever. I mean, she would stand up for the patriarchy, you know, and stand up for the church no matter what. She was not a questioner. And I went home and I was upset. She said, what happened? And I said, can you believe Henry B. Iron grabbed me by the shoulder, gave me this bruise? You know, I told her the whole thing, expecting her to stand up for me. And she said, well, if Henry Iring told you that, you better do it. And I said, what? On what? And my grandma and I got into a fight and I had, um, I mean, I have had issues with my grandmother and I'm still going through EMDR therapy over this, the, uh, the trauma that my grandmother caused. And I was just aghast. I was just aghast. Here is the woman who has been, you know, while my parents are out of town, who has been charged to keep me safe. And she would have gratefully just put me into his arms for the punishment and told me I better do what he said. And, and that is what absolutely just has floored me. I mean, and I've come to realize as, you know, I've had flashbacks of that experience that the conditioning in the cult of, in the cult of the Mormon is so strong that it can, it can mess with maternal instinct. I mean, my grandmother's instinct should have been to protect me from this man, not to say, oh, well, you better do what he says. And I was appalled. Yeah, that's crazy. That is when I realized that, you know, priesthood is just a word. It has no power. But um, you, you make um, an interesting point. You say that you, you're still afraid to speak. But, you know, I, I will always speak up. And I've gotten into my fair share of arguments over the years. But I, I, I don't know what's worse is losing your voice or having a voice constantly not being able to use it in an effort to communicate. So yeah, I spoke up, but you know, no one listened. <laughs> At least no one no one who cared. 
Right. You know, and I'm a black sheep in my family. There's some members of my extended family who won't speak to me. That's, that's crazy. That's awful. You're right. Um, the culture, the cult of Mormonism, it does, it messes with all of your instincts because you're told to second guess yourself. You're, you're not supposed to listen to your, your own inner voice. You just obey what everyone else says. Yeah. And here's another thing. I mean, this dovetails into, I mean, this probably stands out in my list of experiences because it's tied into my grandmother, Isom, um, who really damaged me a lot when I was a child. And one of the most damaging things she did, it was, it was ongoing. Um, uh, we lived in a house in Park City, Utah. Um, she moved out of it, then we moved in. And then when we sold it, we sold it back to her and she lived in it after we had left. But uh, back then, um, you had to take a, a I didn't live in Park City proper. I lived closer to Parley Summit, closer to um, the Jeremy Ranch, and I had to take a bus to school every day, and it would go all around in all the little hidden outback communities on your way to Park City. So I had like a 30-minute bus right on the way home. And even though the bus stop was literally 40 feet from my front door, uh, these two neighbor boys, um, when I was in first grade, they molested me three or four times they would grab me they and I was I was very small and uh, they would take me behind the trees and they would do what they did um ultimately I have to say it was the bishop's son who who and I didn't have a vocabulary to explain to my mother what was going on I oh, didn't yeah. understand I just told her they were beating me up and I, I told her they were beating up my bottom and I think she thought that meant they were like slapping my butt, but it didn't. <laughs> um, and she had an autistic child and she had a newborn baby and literally it was across the street. So what could happen? But there were lots of trees that they would drag me into, but it, it stopped. Um, you know, my parents found out what was going on. You know, the boys were banned from riding the bus. Um, but Ooh, I guess it was close to 20 years later, um, I was at my grandma's and she mentioned that one of those boys had been killed in a bar fight. And she said it was so sad because those boys would come and like shovel her driveway and clean out her gutters. And, you know, being that these boys were my abusers, I said, yeah, well, that's really nice for a, you know, a 25 year old living at home. He comes over to the least he can do is sweep the neighbor's, you know, shovel the neighbor's driveway if he doesn't have a day job. She said, why are you so vicious against right. those boys? Right. And then she mentioned again, you know, that family's mourning. You know, he was killed in a he was killed in a bar fight and his brother was wounded. And I said, it served them right. And she said, that's a horrible thing to say. How dare you? And, you know, told me that I needed to go repent. And I said, do you know what they did to me? And I described in no uncertain terms the abuse that they had inflicted upon me. And she said, well, you know, the Doctrine and Covenant says that if you don't forgive, you are guilty of that sin seven times over. Oh, and so it's always stood out in my mind that the primary socializers, the primary parents, the primary caregiving parents in Mormonism, the mothers 
are perpetuating a lot of the culture of abuse. And that is what floors me as a feminist, as a woman who went out into the world, you know, as someone who got disfellowshipped for <laughs> speaking my mind to a bishop in that one rare instance where I decided to go back and give it a give it a good try. Um, it, it just stands out to me that it is the women who are perpetuating this. It is the women who are perpetuating the patriarchy. It is the primary socializers, the mothers, who are keeping a lot of this alive. And that is what floors me. Yeah. I think it would be an interesting yeah. sociological study to find out why. I mean, just like in the FLDS, right? The women far outnumber the men because you have to in that. And they're the ones doing all the cooking. They're the ones with the access to kitchen knives. It would not be hard, you know, for the women <laughs> to, you know, for, for there to be a woman-led coup in the FLDS. It wouldn't be hard for a woman-led coup in the regular LDS. But they are so brainwashed that it has disconnected something in their DNA that you're supposed to protect your children. And that will always eat at me. Right. It's just like um, when you learn about narcissistic abuse or, you know, narcissistic partners or anything like that. Um, it's incredible. Like so often you see these women in abusive relationships, whether they're physically abusive or, you know, the, the emotional abuse, the mental abuse. And they're in those situations and they stay. And so often you're like, well, why did you stay? Why did you, you know, but they are so, you know, brainwashed into, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way, you know, or he's the head of the household or any number of reasons that they stay or they allow the abuse, not that it's their fault by any means, but it's the same thing. Like the, the church culture is this giant narcissistic abuse and we're brainwashed into saying that that's okay. That's okay to be treated that way. That's okay to um, perpetuate that because that's what God wants. You know, the it's so it's that's what it is. Is that narcissistic abuse? Oh, absolutely. I think it trains us for narcissistic abuse. Even though I grew up in a household where you know it was rather free thinking. It was still very damaging because my mother, who did not believe, I mean, I, I by the time I was 16, my mother did no longer believed. But, you know, for her, it was gradual. She was ne she never believed in it hook, line and sinker. And even and neither of her parents um, believed hook, line and sinker. They were always rather free thinking. And, and I come from, you know, on my mother's side, a very educated family where, where women were. <laughs> educated too. But she believed that it was her duty as a mother to go to church so her children would be protected and not be viewed as pariahs. So she would go and she would pretend to believe and she was in young women's for a long time. And, you know, she'd go to standards nights and, you know, I went to one standards night <laughs> and it's like, oh no, 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 no. And so, you know, she, she, go to church and she would come back every Sunday and, you know, for two hours she would decompress saying, I can't believe they're teaching girls this. What are they doing to young girls' minds? And 
you know, she was decompressing. And, and I'd say, well, you're perpetuating it. You're part of the problem. You just went to standards night. You just brought all of the cupcakes. You're the one that brought out the cupcake that got licked and, you know, passed around. You're the one that went to the florist and bought the rose. I said, so, you know, you can't really complain because you're perpetuating it. And she said, I'm only doing it for you. I'm doing it, you know, so you're not pariahs. I'm doing it so that you're not bullied. And it's like, mom, I'm bullied. <laughs> you know, let's deal with the bullying. Um, I'm bullied because I'm not a member. You know, I'm doing it because I'm not a member in good standing. I'm bullied because I don't believe. I'm bullied because I'm different. I'm bullied because I'm short and have brown hair. And I'm not one of these ideal, tall, blonde, Miss Bountiful handcart days. And she just said, well, imagine how much worse it would be if I weren't active because, you know, I have friends in the church. I have some leverage to talk to their parents. And I just like thought you don't believe, you know, and that to me was hard. And, and my mother has um, really come a long way since then, particularly since she moved out of um, uh, Utah. But it's been a process for her. And I think a lot of that is she was scared to be a free thinker. She saw her dad get persecuted and she saw other people get persecuted and she didn't want that for her kids. And, you know, I realize that now looking back that, yeah, she was worried. Yeah, she didn't want to feel some of she didn't want her children to feel some of the shame she had felt from an inactive um, father. But at the same time, you know, didn't quite understand how the children viewed it. But having that mixed message was just as hard for me as, you know, maybe even having ultra, we, we used to call them iron rod Mormons as opposed to Liahona Mormons. <laughs> I, so yeah, we, we were obviously the Liahona Mormons. It's like, okay, where's the compass? Okay. Yeah. Over there. Great. As opposed to hold fast to the iron rod. But so I often say, I think maybe it would have been less damaging to have an iron rod set of parents than one who, um, you know, gave us a different message at home and told us to keep our truth hidden under that bushel. Yeah, that is so hard. I can imagine that um, having that back and forth. I know when I stopped believing and it was a moment that like my shelf broke and suddenly everything looked different. I tried to continue going to church for a month or two um, just to help with my family. And you know, it was hard for my husband and my kids, you know, suddenly one week mom believes and is pushing everyone out the door to church and the next week mom doesn't believe. And so I tried to be that I want to keep my family together. Of course, in my head, the only way to keep my family together was to stay in the church. And that was so hard, even that short little bit of time that I went acting as a believer, even though I very much wasn't a believer. So I couldn't imagine doing it long term, but I'm also not in the heart of Mormonism. I could imagine, you know, it's a lot more than just trying to keep, you know, your husband happy or whatever. But when your entire, everyone, everything you're surrounded with is Mormonism, I could imagine. I under, I could understand why she'd want to keep that up, but I could also understand how that would be so confusing for you. Well, yeah, particularly since my dad was not a believer and my dad was a pretty vocal non-believer. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, mis the mixed messages were, I think, just as difficult for me because I, I never had a testimony. Um, I was always taught, hey, the Book of Mormon 
it's not the literal truth. Of course, it's not the literal truth. I mean, my father was a college professor, so, you know, we believe in science. It's not the literal truth, but, you know, it's the foundation of a religion, and it has a lot of good ideas in it. So, you know, I was never raised to believe that I had to die on the hill of it's the literal truth. And I kind of thought that's how everybody believed. I kind of thought they all thought it was like the parables of Christ. It didn't matter if the Good Samaritan really lived. You can get a message out of it. But um, just watching, even from the 80s, when the church was in by no means, you know, in the dawn of Aquarius, just watching it get harder and harder lined and and more restrictive and more fringy. even that's been hard because it, it just seems like I remember when I could wear a prom dress with no sleeves and no one would bat an eyelash. I remember when I could wear short shorts and no one would bat an eyelash because I hadn't been to the temple and I was a young kid. And now they're trying to get kids to wear clothes that conform to garments. I, I remember taking my kids back to Utah um, and uh, my my husband at the time, his family, who are r- rather well-known Utah family, uh, I, I just remember my daughter had a two-piece swimming suit on. She was six years old. wasn't even a bikini. It would, it just it had a top and it had a bottom because I always found that those are just far easier to deal with. And uh, I guess once my daughter, who was six years old at the time, stretched, and I guess you could see a little bit of her midriff once she stretched, and my sisters-in-law came up to me and they said, well, you know that the prophet has said that um, kids are now supposed to follow the same dress standards as adults. I looked at her and I, 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 I didn't make the connection in my mind about the swimming suit. And I just looked at her and I said, okay, fine. Why are you telling me this? She said, well, your daughter's in a two-piece swimsuit. And I just, was a guess. And I said, well, you know, I've decided that when it comes to rearing my children, I'm not going to listen to them. I am following my own instinct. There's nothing wrong with her bathing suit. And you need to know that I do not believe he's a prophet anymore. Never did. Don't believe that any of them were prophets. Uh, So I'm going to do what I see fit with my six-year-old. And she said, well, and, and she had boys who were three years old, three and five years older. And she said, well, you don't want my boys to become, you know, aroused by her. And I just looked at her and that was it. I said, if your boys do not have boundaries and they think it's okay to sexually violate my daughter, that's a problem with your parenting. And I said, and that's a problem with your culture. And I will thank you not to sexualize my six-year-old. And if your boys are doing it, shame on you. And she was just aghast. And then I was, of course, the bad guy for, you know, telling that to my, you know, very sweet sister-in-law. Right. Yeah, it's the, the sexualizing of children that just <laughs> floors me. You know, the the whole, you know, don't show their shoulders or one-piece swimsuit or, or anything like that. Um, I had an experience similar, not quite, but similar to that. It was shortly after I started questioning everything. But my kids were still attending, and this was in the throes of um, COVID, so the youth activities were over Zoom. Oh, wow. You know, they weren't physically getting together yet, but yeah, (laughs) youth activities over Zoom. And so my son was on one of the Zoom young men, whatever, and 
one of the young men's leaders was talking and they were talking about modesty that night. And of course, when young men talk about modesty, they're talking about the young women. They don't talk about the young men. Uh huh. And one of the young men, right? <laughs> one of the young men's leaders was talking about how, well, when he was in high school, he was in marching band. And of course, when you're in marching band, you're really hot. You're outside, you're marching, you're sweating, you're, you're out there for 10 hours a day. And he said this one girl was wearing shorts that were really short and they were distracting to him. And he had the courage to go up to her and tell her that they were distracting and that she needed to wear more clothes. And so the rest of the week at band camp, she wore more clothes and it was, it helped him to be able to be a good young man or whatever. And I got so angry that I went over and I turned off his zoom call and I sat down with my son and I was like, look, (laughs) and I told him, I said, that is not on the girl. That is 100% on him that it was distracting him. She was out there doing band camp, surviving because it's a thousand degrees. That is on him. I, it's crazy what they come up with. Uh, yeah. I, I wish you could see you listening at home. I wish you could see the looks on our faces right now. They're priceless. But y- yeah, I'm not in charge of you. How about we teach our boys not to leer at young women or to realize that maybe attraction is a natural human response and that there are correct ways of dealing with it. And that, (laughs) yeah, how about we teach boys there are correct ways of dealing about it. And sometimes to feel a sense of sexual attraction is normal, but that that's something you are supposed to manage. And that is something that you are supposed to keep in check. But I mean, in a culture where we, we draw this line in the sand of, okay, we are supposed to be absolutely virginal and know nothing about sex before we go into the temple and get married, but we step over that line and suddenly everything's okay with that one person. It's a ridiculous standard. It doesn't teach you about temptation. I just remember once a cousin, I mean, when, when you leave the church, your, your cousins send their kids to you because suddenly they have shame and they're hoping for a little bit of compassion and understanding, but I had um, one of my cousins come to me and she said, Andrea, I feel so terrible. I'm sure, I'm sure you've dealt with feeling the shame of sexual attraction. Like, yeah, gee, thanks. Um, But she, she had told me in a, in a, in a conversation, she said, Andrea, I was kissing my boyfriend and I really, she said, I wanted to have sex. I wanted him to touch me. I wanted and, you know, I said, yeah, it's what kissing does. And she said, but that's not supposed to happen. I pray. I pray that I'll know. I pray that I won't feel that way until I'm married. She said, it's something wrong because the Holy Ghost wasn't telling me no. And I said, you know, it's normal. It's a normal human feeling. You know, if parents have discussions with their children about, hey, This is how you feel. Feels really good. You know, you're not going to want to stop because that's, you know, one of the most, you know, basic human instincts there is. And it can also be something that's very spiritually beautiful under the right circumstances. But no, we do this hard, fast, rules based, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And when you're in the throes of passion and desire, you're not going to scroll through your little Mormon matrix about, uh, okay, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And the thing is that they're not really teaching morality in the church. They're teaching rules. And there's not a rule, you know, for every 
situation in every moment. And I think it's absolute bullshit that they're going to teach you that the Holy Ghost is going to guide you out of temptation. Uh, if they taught real morality, which is, okay, kids, you've got these feelings, you're going to feel this way, you know, the sin is not, you know, feeling that way. The sin is, hey, you know, if you haven't planned for it or if you haven't prepared for it, the consequences of bringing a new life into the world before you're ready. But they would, you know, or, or, or getting your kids on birth control. So that you don't have the unwanted consequences. They don't teach anything consequence-based because they believe if you're well-intended, you know, everything's going to be okay and the Holy Ghost is going to step in. And it's it's not true morality. But what they are is they're an absolute draconian organization. They believe that they should rule with an iron hand. And, you know, if you're in a situation where you haven't been given the if this, then that, conversation or had the daylight scared out of you at church about it, you're not going to know what to do. But, you know, life isn't rules-based. Morality isn't rules-based. Morality is about being able to determine for yourself what's good based on, you know, thinking about how the repercussions will affect people in your circle and the world at large. But no, nobody does that because if you were to think about that, you you, you couldn't cling to this whole idea, I'm right because I'm Mormon. Right. And it's a lot of it is, you know, why don't we teach about safe sex versus no sex? You know, it's that that whole idea of turn it off, you know, um, like in the the play, the Book of Mormon, turn it off like a light switch. And of course, there they're talking about gay feelings and gay, you know. But it's it's the same thing. Like they talk about, um, where's the switch? You know, you're you're not right. You're not supposed to have any sexual feelings at all until the day you get married, and then suddenly turn on that light switch, all full steam ahead. You know, and you're you're already so programmed that it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. It's bad then suddenly it's supposed to be good and you can't just change that. No one knows what to do and no one knows how to feel. And it's often not satisfying for at least a long time. And by the time you understand what's going on, you're saddled with children and responsibilities, you know, because you're supposed to have as many children as fast as you can, even though that's not a hard and fast rule. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what the mores are, right? (laughs) I'm still, I'm, I'm grabbing my body. For those of you listening at home, I'm grabbing my body trying to, you know, find the switch that I used to turn on and off sexual desire. I still can't find it. Right. I haven't found that. I think I might know where to look, but that's also a sin. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm here all week. Tip your servers. So what else would you like to discuss? Well, it's like I said, it's completely up to you. Um, I love what we've discussed so far. Kendra, I don't know if you have anything to chime in about. Hello. I've been sitting over here laughing, but I realized that the laugh is not coming through. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and grumbling a little bit when you, when you said some of the things that you've said. Um, <clears throat> One of the things that I think about with what you were telling about your story when you were little and being molested by the boys, um, and we tend to um, we tend to not want to 
um, explain the details, right? Um, which, which then is kind of like uh, us telling our children that nobody should touch your privates. Well, what the fuck are my privates? You know, let's let's make sure that that our children know. Exactly. This is my vagina. This is my vulva. This is my clitoris. This is my anus. These are my breasts, you know, so that they know and they can say, this is what happened to me instead of what you were trying to explain that they were touching your bottom. Well, that's what it was. That's the only word that you had for it. And beating up. Yeah. Beating up your bottom. Yeah. And, and your mom is not going to delve into that, you know, to try to find all the details because it's already making her uncomfortable. So uh, what's made us uncomfortable our whole lives is that we have a story, that we have something that happened to us. And then first when we tell, the person doesn't want to hear it because it's too uncomfortable. And then when we tell later, people don't want to hear it because it's too uncomfortable. You know, our stories are uncomfortable. And we have to get uncomfortable to be able to make change. So doing this this whole podcast is all about that. We want we want people to hear this is what happened to me. This is who I told. They were uncomfortable with it, so therefore I shut down. There's multiple ways of us being silenced all throughout our childhood, all throughout our adulthood, and especially as Mormon women, we don't want to be too much. We don't want to be a burden, and we absolutely don't want to be abandoned. And if this is our only our only resource for all of those things that we need, love, um, affection, parenting, uh, a culture and community, losing all of that seems devastating and is devastating in the moment. But it's also devastating to be kept inside of it because we continue to perpetuate the misogyny. We continue to perpetuate the, the um, inattention to the issues and refusing to address those issues. Um, I'm really good at rambling, by the way. <laughs> You know, everybody's paying attention to the whole notion that, yeah, you know, Western society, it's the patriarchy, yeah, putting women in their place, bad, molesting women, bad, putting women down, bad. But, you know, I, it, the, the other uncomfortable thing, I think that even that particularly outside the church that no one wants to delve in is it's women who are the primary socialists still. And even woke women to a certain extent, will uphold the patriarchy. And, you know, that is what just absolutely has, I think, almost been the focal point of my whole life, is just that I have seen, you know, women who have been hurt in the church, by the church, by men who went out of their way, in my grandma's case, until her dying day, to uphold the system that hurt her. (laughs) And would, you know, continue to push it on a new generation. In fact, um, uh, abandonment. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have dealt with the fear of abandonment. I still do. I think just coming from um, a line of, of um, women who 
were educated. My great, great, great grandmother, I think, started the teaching program at both BYU and the University of Utah. And she was an absolute proponent of educating girls. And she wanted music in school. And she was actually an early suffragette who was a Mormon. She was married to the mayor of Provo, um, one of the first college graduates. And she just absolutely girls educate the boys here's the benefit of it and she was very forward-thinking so I you know I came from a line of women who were educated my father did not but when I uh was accepted at Northwestern um for a graduate program I was the first I think I was only the second grandkid second girl in you know this pool of 40 some odd grandchildren on my father's side to even go to college on my father's side. I was certainly the first to get a graduate degree, and I think there's only one other grandchild in that pool of 40 with a with um with an advanced degree. But the fact that I I got into a really good school, and this is not to toot my own horn, but the night before I moved to Chicago, she held an intervention because she said I was turning my back on God and family. And she said God was going to curse me with infertility because I wasn't choosing, you know, to get married. I was 24, almost 25. I was the only one of her granddaughters. I think I still am, other than my two sisters, who was not married and a mother before the age of 21. But I went to graduate school because I didn't want a man to support me because I, you know, felt, you know, no man's going to, no Mormon man's going to want me. I better learn how to pay some bills on my own. No man's going to want me. But I was just utterly floored that she could not take any pride in, in what I'd accomplished. You know, I had graduated with honors. I had gotten into a darn fine graduate school. And that's not what she, and to her, that was a total betrayal of what she thought a woman should do. And she tried the night before to get me not to go by telling me how horrible I was. And that hurt. Yeah, that's awful. You have this amazing accomplishment that a lot of women never get to. And you're, you know, trying to be self-sufficient. Of course, you know, like here I am 39 years old going through a divorce and thankfully I have a job and everything, but I'm like, I was a stay at home mom for eight, nine years. And if I had stayed that way, I would be up a creek without a paddle right now. And so many women Mm -hmm. that happens to either their spouse dies or they get a divorce and they're stuck because they were, there's nothing wrong with being a stay at home mom, but they never got education and they have no way of supporting themselves. Right. Because they bought into a system that they believed would take care of them. And then when you realize that people are human, (laughs) Being a Mormon doesn't make you perfect. Uh, being a Mormon man doesn't make you a provider. Being a Mormon man doesn't, you know, doesn't stop temptation or bad behavior. It just drives it underground where no one can talk about it. And by the time you discover it, it's too late to do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that the church has an issue with strong women. And the more educated that women become, the more outspoken we become and the more we put two and two together, the more that we, we recognize um, patterns of behavior and dysfunctional patterns of behavior 
And the more we want to make change. But the thing is, is there's a lot of people that want to make change from the inside. But the reality is, is that it's a hypocrisy to try to make change from the inside because you can't live something and and defend something that is abusive. No. And and still say that you don't believe in it and still say that you or say that you believe in it, but you don't follow that part of it. The issue that you were talking about earlier is all about protecting their reputation. We are groomed from a very young age. Honor the family name that you bear. Return with honor. Um, We need to uh, defend the reputation of the church. We need to protect the reputation of the church. We need to honor the leaders of the church and not speak ill of the Lord's anointed, even if they're an abusive asshole. Well, yeah, that's why I call. Yeah, that's why I call the men that. um, I've got so many stories that, you know, tried to come to my house when my oldest daughter was 14. Um, She was never baptized, so I didn't think she was a member. Well, that's bullshit. If you have a membership member, just because you're unbaptized, you're a member. And just even after I took my name off the records, the calls I would get from the church and just, well, they'd come over. Hi, Aunt Lorelai hasn't had her worthiness interview. Like, and we're here to give it to her. Oh, hell no, you're not. No, but um, but there is something to that about about strong women. My um, the father of my children. He is a Utah Young. That is not his surname, but his mother is uh, from the Salt Lake Youngs of the Brigham Young and the David Angel Youngs, and you know they're the Youngs. And that family name, the, what what is perpetuated in that family name and the skeletons in that closet is are are just horrific. But um, he was disabled and I was the breadwinner. I was also pregnant, um, in a, uh, I, I, I was pregnant and I worked full time and, uh, he had a job, but it, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the, the primary focus. And he was also, oh, taking some classes to try and do something better. But I was the one that worked full time and he was going to be the one who's going to be the primary caretaker of the baby when it was born. Uh, he actually cheated on me while I was pregnant and he felt bad and he went to the bishop. This bishop did not like me. And at the time, because he was a young, even though he himself did not believe, he asked me if I would, you know, get sealed in the temple just as a way to, you know, you know, just so that his family would would be okay. And I thought, okay, yeah, I can do that. I can, I can go that extra mile and I can show you that I'm committed to this marriage and that, you know, I'm committed to keeping peace in the family. But after, after I go, not going back, you know, I'm not going back to church. That's all I'm going to do. And I'm not going to be quiet. And, um, you know, I, I, the Bishop was good in the sense that, you know, he said, Hey, you know, I know you don't believe, but I think going through the motions and if you act worthy, I think, you know, once you get there, you'll understand. So I was going through the motions, really trying. And you're going through the motions as a non-believer, going through all of these acrobatics, hearing all of these things in Sunday school, thinking, okay, how can I twist this into a positive message? You, you, you just go nuts. And then your husband cheats. So he went and he confessed to the bishop and he did feel bad about it. Nothing happened to him. 
I got disfellowshipped because the bishop thought that I was arrogant because I worked full time. And um, I didn't get my temple recommend because he thought that my arrogance was what pushed my husband to cheat. And so my husband, who should by rights have been excommunicated because he had been through the temple before. Absolutely. Nothing happened to him because it was my fault. It was my fault he cheated and I got punished for it. And I was actually told by my bishop that I was not humble enough. No, I was not prostrate enough in front of God's true priesthood, in front of Heavenly Father's true priesthood. Can I ask you a question? You can ask anything. It's kind of a joke question, but a sarcastic question. What were you wearing when he cheated on you? Oh my God. I was wearing sweatpants, maternity sweatpants. I was wearing compression socks because I had preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. See, it was your fault. See, right? And and what was the woman that he was cheating on you with? What was she wearing? <laughs> Apparently nothing. Not much because she was a paid escort. Oh, well, there you go. See, it was it was the paid escort's fault that he cheated on you. And it was your fault that he cheated on you because, you know, you're arrogant because you have an education. You were arrogant because you're outspoken. And, you know, it's just, it's all always our fault. And I was supporting his ass. And I was also paying his bills. Right? I was bringing on the bacon, frying it up in a pan, and he was off spending that hard-earned bacon yeah. with a Nevada escort. That floors me. That absolutely floors me that he would cheat and you would get disfellowshipped. Does it really? Does it really, though? I just can't even. It's terrible. And it should never happen that way. But... You're not the only one that I've heard a story kind of like this, that the women get punished for the men's behaviors. And do you know the only reason I made it to the temple? Okay, that bishop, and I was ready to quit right then. I was was about ready to say, all right, fuck this. I was like, I'm not going to the temple if this is what it means, you know, to to give this gift to your family, you know, fuck it. And, and, And my ex, he felt bad. I mean, he really did. We, we ended up going to counseling. He took responsibility. He said what he thought happened was wrong. And that was actually part of why he never went back. I mean, the marriage didn't survive, but um, he will to this day say that the right thing to do was leaving the church. And he actually gave me um, 100% of the kids' religious decisions in the divorce because he didn't want his family meddling. But um, the, the only reason I, I got my temple recommend after that is after that bishop was released, a new bishop who was called was the corporate attorney for two businesses my father held stock in. And so he said, let's get you to the temple, Andrea. And and <laughs> easiest, worthiest interview ever is, oh, I don't I know I don't even need to ask you any of this. You're pregnant, so you're not drinking or drinking coffee I, I you're you're married so you know chastity isn't an issue and he said and I know you've had questions and he said you know what I appreciate your questions but I just know once you get to the celestial one for the first time you're just gonna know so let's get you there so did you go <laughs> wow <laughs> that's like you won bishop roulette right there <laughs> well no he was trying to get in good with my dad 
I mean, my dad is his client, one of his bigger clients. Mm. So, you know, but I did, I did have a lovely argument. Um, or I shouldn't say argument. I had a, I had a very uh, robust discussion. Uh, I was uh, getting my second master's degree at the time. I was getting uh, my executive MBA at the time, and we were living on student loans and grants. And we, we, he said, well, you haven't paid tithing. I said, tithing on student loans? He said, well, when I was at BYU, I paid tithing on student loans. I said, well, that's ridiculous. And he said, it's 10% of all gain. I said, you tell me how student loans are gain. Okay, I'm given this money and I am going to have to pay it off with interest to the government. How is that gain? And so, you know, because I'm an accountant, I got up and showed him T accounts. I said, that's not gain. So basically, you're putting another 10% tax on my student loans? And he said, and, and, and he was just floored. And so he actually went back and, um, I don't know, he came back and he said, all right, Andrea, you don't need to pay tithing on your student loans. And I said, I know I don't. He said, but it would be appreciated. And I said, okay, if I don't, is it going to keep me out of the temple? And he said, no. And I said, then I'm not going to pay tithing on my student loans. Just like I asked him, if I drink decaf, can I still go to the temple? Yeah. Um, I'm. The more I hear about like them asking for tithing, they ask for tithing from people who can't even pay their own bills. And for them to pay their bill or pay their tithing before they pay their bills, because that is what faithful people do, and that they can then, <clears throat> excuse me, they can then have um, all the blessings of being faithful and having faith that they will still have money or that they'll get money or whatever. Paying tithing on student loans, I'm I'm sitting here figuring out how much money I owe. <laughs> church <laughs> you don't have to go to church zero no no but if if i were to have paid money on my student loans hmm but the fact that our vocabulary the fact that our vocabulary still says how much have i owed i mean that is how deep it runs right exactly yeah the fact that we even once thought about it well I've had conversations with people about being be, being kept in an infantile state. So the church makes all your decisions for you before you're even born. Yeah. Your your decisions are made for you. You don't have agency. You know you don't. They've already. There was a recent conversation or a recent talk that I that I heard somebody posted. I don't remember who it was, but because I care not to even listen to those things because they're ridiculous. But about agency, you you your life is laid out. From the beginning to the end, don't think, don't think, don't decide if whether or not, don't decide whether or not you should pay tithing, just pay it. And don't, don't have the argument about um, gross versus net, just pay it. The letter of law versus the spirit of the law, that's the argument. It's not whether or not you should pay it, you should pay it, just, you know. The letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Do you pay it on your gross or do you pay it on your net? Do you pay what your bishop tells you you should be paying on your student loans and on what on food stamps now too? Maybe on you know on on all of the the 
<laughs> the gain that you get from actually being able to pay for your food if you're on food stamps, but can't pay your other bills. It's ridiculous. And what do they do with that money? They make it so that the, the church is even more wealthy, even more wealthy. They're building their wealth, but they're taking from they, all of us. They build, they build monuments to consumerism. They build the very, they build the very temple, which in the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself slammed and overturned and, and criticized. And right in front of the temple, there are the moneylenders and the merchants. It's that big monument to materialism and, and wealth that stands in perfect irony <laughs> to the claim of being Christ-like. Yeah. Now that you say that, the whole the whole Lehi's dream has a completely different meaning for me. The people who actually leave and find their own way, whether it's you know holding on to the iron rod or not, are the people who are actually thinking for themselves. The people who are in this great and spacious building, like the conference center in, <laughs> in Salt Lake City, because have you seen the pictures that are made of Lehi's dream? It looks exactly like the conference center, this massive building. <laughs> All the people in there are the ones that are pointing at us, judging us for leaving, saying all of them just wanted to sin. We're just terrible people. They just can't stop talking about the church. And they're pointing and mocking and telling us that we're terrible. Pointing and laughing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I noticed that, you know, the church tells them how to have a conversation and they can answer two questions after that but they can't go any further because they're not taught to think or argue or have any kind of you know right. rational debate based on any kind of aristotelian logic and i remember my mother-in-law um after i left the church um you know she was just irate and and you know i i i my husband lost his courage again and i i'm the one that had to tell her that we weren't going to baptize our children and she said well you know, it's your right to leave. You just left the church because you wanted to drink coffee and you wanted to sin. And I said, you're just saying that because that's what you've been told to say. I said, you know, you, you watched me during my pregnancy absolutely give up sugar and everything else, you know, because I had a scorching case of gestational diabetes. I said, you have watched me go through two graduate programs you know, where I have absolutely spent my time and worked full time doing it, supporting your son and, and his, you know, family soon to come forth. You have watched me absolutely be stringent with my diet so that I could bring a healthy baby into the world. And you think this is a discipline issue? Oh, hell no, honey. And and then the next one was, well, you, you, you just, you know, you, you just don't have what it takes to live up to the standards. And I said, no. I believe these are arbitrary rules and I believe that this is a structure of control and that the church has, you know, the church has an interest keeping me in because that's how they fund themselves. I said, it's a business. Can you not see it? Mm -hmm. And I said, so, you know, you want to know why I left? Let's have a discussion about the doctrine, but don't you tell me that this is a discipline issue. If you want to know why I left, I will tell you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she just didn't have anything to say, Pat. And I said, I know they don't tell you 
what to say after the third question. That's the whole thing. Don't ask questions. Don't ask questions that actually make you think. Um, are you, I, I don't want to necessarily ask your political affiliation, but like left, right, moderate. Well, when it comes to, when it comes to social issues, I am a bleeding heart liberal. Uh, when it comes to fiscal responsibility, when it, when it comes to, um, this, when it comes to monetary policy, I'm more of a centrist, but I am absolutely, you know, two people love each other, they should get married. I think the government should be out of the bedroom. I think if you think an abortion's wrong, don't get one, but don't you tell any other woman on this planet who may have a medical condition what is or is not her right to do. If you don't believe in gay marriage, mm-hmm. don't enter into a gay marriage. <laughs> but shut your mouth and live your truth. Because if your truth is the truth, then it should be Teflon. If your truth is the truth, there is no challenge that should topple it. Absolutely. And if you are so thin-skinned and it is so easily toppled that you get flustered when somebody asks you a question, you are not the guardian of truth. You are a prisoner. Yeah, exactly. And the reason that I asked that was not necessarily to, you know, to get all of that, but that was amazing. The reason I asked is because um, I'm really concerned, not just about our, about the church, but I'm concerned about our country and how much in misinformation has been just spread around. People do not um, go and look to see what the truth actually is. They don't go and verify the sources. They just listen and repeat and listen and repeat and listen and repeat. And the Mormon church is so full of people like that, that they defend, they defend, they defend, they defend over and over again. And they'll defend until they're blue in the face. But the reality is, is that they're defending something that they don't really know. They don't really and the reason they're defending it is because that's what they've been taught. I believed I was a Republican all through my life because my parents were Republicans. And not until I left the church, well, before before I left the church, but not until I left the church did I actually embrace that. Because when I was, it was like 2017, 2017 2018 when I left the church. And I, I always had like this conflict with the beliefs or with the people in the church who could not think for themselves and just kind of spewed or spewed uh, misinformation all the time. And then when I, you know, when I left the church, I was like, well, wow, how, ma- how many times did I do that? How many times did I defend the church in an effort to um, help their reputation or in an effort to make sure that um, we're all on the same page, realizing that I was I was not actually looking into some of the facts of things. Um, so when people would actually come to me with facts, well, I have a testimony of it, right? So there's no answer to that. There's no, there's no response to that because I can't, I can't argue with your feelings. Well, you, you bring up a good point scary about the political climate in the United States right now is that it is Mormon men on the vanguard of the misinformation campaigns. Mike Lee, Glenn Beck, my God. Right. Going along with what Kendra said earlier about how some people like, they may not believe in the church, but they stay in the church to try to change it from the inside. But that so does 
if you're staying in the church to try to change it from the inside, you're still perpetuating their beliefs and the patriarchy and, and all of that stuff and the, the political climate that they inflict. And if you're actually vocal enough to start trying to make a change, they kick you out. You know, that's, that's the people that get disfellowshipped or excommunicated because they don't want you to have a voice. So if you don't believe in the church, but you're staying in it to try to make a change from the inside, you're, you can try all you want, but it's just going to further perpetuate that. And it's, it's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. Um, when, uh, when people are trying to change things from the inside or saying they're trying to change things from the inside, they, um, they're denying their own truth. They're denying themselves, which is also what we're taught from the time that we're very little, Listen to the Holy Ghost. Listen to the still small voice. It's very confusing because is it a still small voice or is it a burning in my bosom? And where is my bosom exactly? <laughs> you know? Yeah. They just deny themselves over and over again. You're not willing to topple the enterprise causing the corruption. Guess what? You're guilty of collusion. Ivanka, Eric, DJ, TJ, Trump style collusion. Yep. Um, I recently ended a relationship, or I, I guess technically he ended it, although I like it. Yep. Um, and there's actually a very high up Mormon um, who has been really wanting me to have an emotional affair with him. Um, I'm not even going to tell you what his calling is in the church because it would give it away. But. Uh, he was a uh, he was a mentor term to me in my youth, and actually, when I was being bullied uh, by a lot of boys in the church, he was there for me. And our relationship has never been. Well, I can't say that. The relationship has not been a physical relationship. It's been more of an intellectual one, and a spiritual one. And um, he has been a colleague over the many years, but what he wants from me or what he wanted from me um, was a relationship I couldn't give him because I felt it, he was overstepping the bounds of his marriage, even though, you know, we weren't touching at all. What he wanted to discuss with me are the things a man should discuss with his wife. And I was always saying, no, you're overstepping. No, we can have a professional relationship. We can have a cordial relationship, but you know, he was professing his love and he wanted me to profess it too. And I wouldn't. And it's like, okay, no, this is time that belongs to your wife. And he was one of those people who um, is a Mormon who, you know, is kind of a left-wing Mormon who is saying, hey, you know, we need to reconsider this. But, you know, is Johnny on the spot to his priesthood meetings? And, and he's a pretty well-known public figure. And, but he's, and, you know, and, and he'll always play the devil's advocate in church, but he's still very much in lockstep with what it believes. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, it's, it, it's all a lie. You know, here he is pretending to be this dutiful husband, but, you know, he wants to have this, even though it's a, a distance, you know, it, it, it's got distance and the fact that I won't engage in certain circumstances, first of all, you know, I'm the conscience of the relationship. The fact that he's living this lie and wants to have this romance while he is talking about how wonderful his 
eternal companion is on Facebook is just pretty emblematic of the whole idea of, you know, changing from within, which is why he says he stays when I know for a fact he does not believe. And yet he has published um, works on church doctrine. Um, I just want to go back to that because it's really a good example of the church teaches people or does not teach people. It teaches the opposite of consent and of boundaries. How many times have you been asked or it, Sarah, you may also have been asked this. How many times have you been asked, why aren't you wearing your garments? <laughs> Who the fuck asked me about my underwear? Right. In what other culture, in what other area of the United States or any other country, is it okay to ask somebody if they're wearing underwear and what kind? Right. Or why they're not wearing it? <laughs> you know, I mean, how is that appropriate? It's not. Uh, telling someone, <laughs> it's not. It's not. People overstep their bounds in the church, just like President Eyring did with you, coming and talking to you, grabbing you by the shoulder, pulling you aside, and trying to use his pretend authority to tell you what you should be doing. And, and then using the idea that it was a, a prompting from the Holy Ghost, that he's, he's received a revelation, he's received any kind of prompting for you that he needs to tell you what to do with your life. It's all really, really scary, really damaging that they think that they can overstep those boundaries, which is why I think that a lot of people in the church, not just about um, men being thinking that women are responsible for their thoughts and actions because of their what they wear. Um, I mean, how many other places is this happening in the church? <laughs> My children have Iceland cousins. On their father's side. So uh, but the father of my children, I married him. And then a year and a half later, his younger sister married a cousin of mine. So there were two. Well, I don't want to give away his name, but there were two Isom, his last name weddings in two years. So my children have a set of double cousins. So if that's not embarrassing enough, um, my one, my cousin who married my sister-in-law, just died in the wool, just, you know, put it out there. Just, I'm, I'm Mr. Goody Two Shoes and I'm the type, I'm not going to tell you why aren't you wearing your garments. I'm just going to jokingly tease you about, oh, your knees. But so, you know, I, I quit. Like I didn't say anything. I just went about living my life and on the same trip where, where my, my daughter's swim attire was called into question. Uh, that was when I think Bountiful first got a Starbucks. So I went to Starbucks and, you know, he saw me and the houses were across the street. So I was, I was, I was on my own turf. I was on the non-mo turf, but he walked over and he thought he was just going to talk to me. He said, oh, you've been to Starbucks. Uh-oh, you know, you're not avoiding the, you're not avoiding the appearance of evil. And I, I didn't say anything. I'm, I'm in the habit of not answering people. If people were to ask me, why aren't you wearing your garments? I give them a look like this. I asked you a question. Yes, I can validate that you just asked me a question. Uh, so, oh, Andrea, you know, you're not, you're not shying away. You've got the appearance of evil. What are you drinking? I said, coffee. And he said, no, come on. What are you drinking? Coffee. He said, no, come on. What, what are you drinking? I said, I'm drinking coffee. 
<laughs> and he said, I think you're really drinking coffee. And I said, yes, I'm drinking coffee. And he said, well, why would you tell me you're drinking coffee? And I said, because you asked. They said, well, why aren't you trying to hide the fact that you're drinking coffee? I said, Ryan, have you not figured out during this family reunion that I don't believe anymore? After all the times I have said the president of the church is not an authority over me. Have you not noticed that I refuse to call him a prophet? Have you not noticed that my but when, you know, our mother-in-law was reading to our children, telling them about, you know, that that the 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 progenitors of the American, you know, tribal Indians uh, you know, came from Israel, that my child looked at her and said, No, they walked across the ice bridge. I said, Have you not figured out I don't believe? And he said, <laughs> and he was just dumbfounded. He said, so you're really drinking coffee? He said, yes, I'm drinking coffee. I said, I don't happen to believe in lying. <laughs> and I said, and here, you're telling me that I should lie for you? That I should lie to keep up appearances? I said, wow, Ryan, that's fucked up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When one of my favorite um, classes in, in uh, my master's program was an ethics class. And uh, there's one line that I I repeat and I I remember and I repeat it often. And that's that we all have rights, but our rights only extend so far as they don't infringe upon the rights of another person. And in the church, there is no boundaries. There's no, um, there's no tact there, everybody thinks that they have the right to walk over to somebody and say, you shouldn't be wearing that, like that talk that that person was giving to your son. You shouldn't be wearing that because it affects me. Well, it doesn't affect you unless you allow it affect you, allow it to affect you. But you just extended upon somebody else. You, you made it so that your rights were infringing upon theirs. They have the right to wear whatever they want. Women have the right to their own healthcare decisions. Women have the right to decide whether or not they get an abortion. And people who are religious, not just Mormons, people who are religious believe that they can tell other people what to do with their bodies. Religion is the problem. Yeah, particularly if you're a woman. I mean, what are we taught as women? That you're nothing without a man. And they don't come right out and say that, but they show us things like Johnny Lingo, where your worth as a woman is not just because you're not you're no one until somebody loves you, but it's actually a literal bovine scale of approval. How many cows are you worth today? We're not even up to the level of livestock. We're not second class citizens. We're not even chattel. They try to make that movie a beautiful love story so that then it, it, it inflicts these little emotions in us and makes us think, oh, you know, somebody found value in her. Find value in yourself, you know, value yourself enough to get the fuck out. Right. And we're taught from the time that we're little babies that we cannot get to heaven without a husband. The men can go to heaven without a wife, but. A woman cannot get to heaven without a husband. And that just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yep. And so a man told Mahana she was ugly, her brother. Ma. And, you know, and, and I realize all the boys were supposed to learn from that, that horrible Johnny Lingo 
that they were supposed to treat women gently and that they were supposed to respect women. And you know what all the boys got out of it? Mahana, you ugly. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, yeah, Johnny Lingo pisses me off. I am not to be rated on a bovine scale of anything. Yet, I believe I heard the father of my children, he recently remarried. I believe he actually referred to his new wife as as an eight-cow wife. And that just, it's like, I'm sorry, that will never be a compliment. <laughs> I'm at least a 500-cow wife. You know, I, I want a whole herd, you know. Because then I'll sell all of them <laughs> and support myself. Yeah, get a divorce lawyer, get a boat to the mainland. Yeah. Oh, gee, I, we even got to talk about funny lingo. Wow. You can talk about anything you want on here because the reality is, is that everything in the church is abusive in one way or another to at least one person. Yes. Not more, you know? Yes. But they all try to make it seem like it's a beautiful thing. You know, and there's there's good in the church. Well, there's good people in the church that just haven't figured out who the fuck they really are. And there's good people in the church who still try to live the brainwash. But they're living in this situation where they are constantly in conflict with themselves. Right. They can't be true to themselves and be true to the church at the same time. Right. And the church just makes people do so much. It occupies so much of their time that they're just too exhausted at the end of the day to, to, to figure out, you know, to even have another thought. Yeah. I mean, have all these children come to all your callings, church ball, homemaking night, church, church for four hours on Sunday. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I find it far easier, the whole Catholic paradigm. You only need to go to mass and confess twice a year. Mass is 45 minutes, twice a year, Christmas and Easter. Confess to a priest twice, which, which, which I still have problems with, but my God, four hours every Sunday, eight kids, homemaking night, uh, couples night, spaghetti dinners, church ball. It, right. Well, listen also to the, same, to the things that they say to you. Lose yourself in service of God. Lose yourself. Un yep. Lose yourself. That's the key word right there. Lose yourself. Forget yourself, basically. Um, what's the one about, uh, give said the little stream, give, oh, give, give, oh, give, give away till you can't give anymore. Um, turn that frown upside down and smile that frown away, you know, totally deny everything you feel and see, give it all away, give it all to God. I mean, yep. you're not the first person that's brought that up. Esteban in his episode brought up the thing about give said the little stream. So me and Christina went down to Las Vegas last, <laughs> this last weekend. And we rewrote the words to the song Give Said the Little Stream. So I think we'll wait until after your episode to release that. But um, yeah, we sang it together, the three of us. It's pretty cute. That's awesome. I can't wait to see that. The golden plates do not exist, but people think <laughs> they do. <laughs> okay, we got to You can help us. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love it. One thing I wanted to say real quick, you were talking about, um, you know, the church does some good or there's good people in the church. There's, you know, it's not all bad. One thing after I left the church, of course, you know, I'm doing the podcast and there's other, you know, on Facebook groups or whatever. And 
I'm not always talking about good things about the church. Now I'm talking about bad things about the church. And that was an issue. My husband and I actually um, gotten a couple arguments about it because even though he also left the church, he was so much of um, saying, but the church still does good. They do good. There's no reason for us to pull them down. You know, we can just go like we can leave the church and leave it alone. But I, I write, <laughs> if you could see Andrea right now, she's like, ah. Um, but I told him, I said, you know what? For 38 years, I had that toxic positivity and I only looked at the good in the church and I ignored everything bad. I said, for once in my life, I'm allowing myself to see the bad. And I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to see the bad for once after 38 years of ignoring the bad. So I was like, you got to give me a chance to see that bad. So, yeah, yeah, there is some good, but it's like this much good. And once you start looking at the other side, there's so much. Yep. And then you realize that even the stuff that you thought was good, it has underlying connotations of, of bad things. It implies certain things that are actually very damaging and unhealthy. And we don't, you know, we, we learn to just internalize all these things and, and forget ourselves and just, just go to church. Just go to church. Just go you know, magnify your calling. Well, you remember the analogy of the, um, the frog in the water and it's boiling water. We start out as children in this pot of nice room temperature water. And then they turn up the heat just a little bit. They turn up the heat through primary. They turn up the heat when you're baptized. They turn up the heat all through youth. And then they turn the heat all the way up and it's too late to get out. And you're standing in a temple with a veil over your face um, saying the same words as everybody else in a fucking cult prayer circle of, oh God, hear the words of my mouth. And then allowing yourself to question your own intuition that says, it's screaming at you saying this is a cult because everybody else around you who are all probably very well educated or very smart people, even, you know, if it's not through education, they're very wise people. And you're sitting there and you're looking at everybody around you thinking, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why don't, why am I, why am I feeling this? Why do I think this is wrong? Why don't I feel good about this? Oh, I better pray. There's something wrong with how I'm doing things. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Because everybody else around me can't possibly be wrong. They're all joining in. And they're doing so of their own free will and choice. They're staying there. Raise your hand. Turn to the brethren. Right hand in. Right hand out. Left hand in. Left hand out. Turn and face the brethren. Turn yourself about. That's what it's all about. Um, it, in fact, when I when I, I I went to the temple twice, once when I took out my endowments, and and then when I when I got sealed. Uh, so I got my endowments, and during that whole crazy ass dance you do, turn and face this and that, and 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 we're supposed to be equal in the temple, but we still have to you know cover our faces in the prayers, or because apparently not even being in the home of God can keep those anointed penises down. Um, but I remember so through all that. And I guess it's called a wimple. My my wimple fell off, and I was just like. And even though I I I you know even though I had all my doubts, and I was really just doing this, you know, for my husband, I just bent down, picked it up, put it back on. Can't be uncovered in the face of God. So I put it back on, and I continued the hokey pokey. 
And then we went into the celestial room and I'm standing there next to my husband who's, you know, wearing just those temple clothes are just stupid. Anyway, so this worker makes a beeline to me, you know, almost almost going too fast, you know, for the temple. Your wimple is on upside down here. Let me put it on right. We don't want to, you know, you know, we don't want you to have to go through the temp. We don't want to have to, you know, make you do your endowments again. And I said, what? I said, yeah, you might have to do your endowments again. I said, seriously? I said, <laughs> God can see the intent of my heart. It, it was all I could do to just shut up. And I said, but God knows the intent of my heart. She said, that's okay. That's why if I put it on now, no one will notice and you can just go on. And I was just like, really? Just, just really? Ew. Again, she's imposing her will upon you and interfering with your rights and telling you how to do things. And that thing is so ugly. How would you know if it's on upside down or not? It's it's the most ridiculous looking thing. It looks like you've tied a, a, an apron yep. on your, yeah. It, it, it's like, it's so ugly. Yeah. How would you know which way is right? You know, there's no right way to wear that stupid thing. Well, I have more than, more than cinema piece. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great conversation. I'm really glad that we had this conversation. It's, I think it's validating, you know, to have another person or other people who have experienced something similar uh, to just listen and, and, you know, actually laugh about it too, you know, Um, even though it was hard at the time and is still hard and affects our lives on a daily basis. um, Because I know you said you're going through EMDR, uh, you know, our, our responses um, emotionally, and um, in the moment, as far as like, um, I, I'm losing my words now. It's too, it's, <laughs> my, my work day is over. But um, emotionally and being able to just say, um, this is, you know, this is something that we all have in common. We all have these same feelings in common, but we've just been taught not how, how to not talk about them um, through shame, through guilt, through songs. Um, so this is, this is so important, you know, having each of these conversations really appreciate that you've, that you've been vulnerable enough to share the things that you've shared. I I know it's going to help other people. Absolutely. Yes, for sure. Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Would you like to plug your Instagram or anything so that people know where to find you or your, your writing, any of your writing? Look for the com online. I sit on the editorial board. It's also, I believe, now has a sister publication called The Vespa at Adarella Publishing. And that's where you can find me. That's where you can find my burgeoning writing. I am looking to start writing again. You can also look me up on Amazon if you're very interested in learning about um, international accounting policy. Um, I am a co-author and editor of the I, of the Wiley Guide to Fair Value under IFRS. It's fascinating reading and will put you to sleep immediately. It's also 10 years out of date. But <laughs> if you really want to read there you go. Um, the original article was written in the Moray Review, and that's Moray, M-A-R-A-I-S, review.com. Thank you. 
Well, thank you. This has been a really wonderful experience. For sure. Thank you again, Andrea, for your time. It has truly been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Latter-day Survivors. You can find us on the web at latterdaysurvivors.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Latter-day Survivors. And we're on Twitter at LD Survivors. As survivors of trauma and abuse, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing we are not alone, that there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this. Longer will you suffer in this life?